Welcome to Bible Study, Parody, and Subversion in Matthew's Gospel. One of the problems in communication between people of power and privilege and those who don't have as much power and privilege is that people of power and privilege tend to talk in terms of ideal and abstract theories, which don't really work on the ground. For example, they tend to talk about the free market, when there is no real free market. The government in any functioning country always intervenes in the market, if only, for example, to build roads. When the government builds roads, that takes away that burden from the participants in the market who can then transport goods and labor on those publicly financed roads. So right there, we have significant government intervention in the economy. And there are many more ways that that's done. Fire departments, health and safety regulations, public utilities, The creation of money itself is a market intervention. And the government doesn't just create money and then walk away and let the market do its thing. The government decides when to print more money or take money out of circulation. The government in the United States, through the Federal Reserve Bank, sets interest rates. Anyone who speaks of a free market is speaking of a complete fiction. And if they insist that the government's role is limited to setting a few basic rules and providing some basic infrastructure, after which the market can just do its thing, then, as Jesus and Matthew would say, they don't have eyes to see or ears to hear. They are willfully blind and deaf to reality because that is never what actually happens. Advocates of the so-called free market usually only object to market interventions by the government when those interventions favor the poor and working class. But they rarely object when the interventions, such as bank bailouts every time there's another bank crash, favor the wealthy. So this ideal of a free market is not only a fiction, but a highly hypocritical one as well. Another example of the sort of ideal that people of privilege and power talk about is assumed equal opportunity. People of power and privilege often speak as if everyone has the same opportunity. But we know that in reality, societies offer people widely different opportunities. Even the idea of meritocracy itself rarely actually works in reality. If our economy was an actual meritocracy, then the people who work the hardest in the least desirable jobs, such as migrant farm workers, would be paid the most. But instead, they are some of the lowest paid jobs, while people who work in comfortable air-conditioned buildings doing work that excites them get paid far more than they will ever need. So these nice theories of the free market and assumed equal opportunity and meritocracy 
are lofty ideals that exist only in the abstract, floating high above the earth in the collective imagination of the powerful and privileged of the world, never making it down to the ground. And that's the sort of thinking that Jesus calls out in the passage for this episode. My name is Bert Newton, and this is episode 40 of Bible Study, Parody, and Subversion in Matthew's Gospel. get into the text today, I want to remind everyone that Matthew, like the other books of the Bible, is an ancient text coming from a time and place when writers often wrote in a style that we might think of as highly polemical. What I mean is that the writer's ideological opponents are painted in broad brushstrokes as caricatures with little nuance. And I think that if we are honest— and we usually are not, but if we are honest, a lot of writing and speaking today tends to do the same thing. We tend to paint our ideological opponents with broad brushstrokes. I think that the internet, especially social media, has made this more apparent, but still we persist and even hide this from ourselves. I'm going to take a little risk here and say that I don't understand how anyone can like a man the likes of Donald Trump. I was going to say that I don't understand how anyone could vote for him, but then I remember that there are many people who do not like the man, but voted for him for ideological reasons. I still disagree with them. I disagree with them a lot, but that's a different sort of disagreement. But there are millions of people who actually like Donald Trump even adore him, which I don't understand. I see him acting like a greedy, immature man-child who lies constantly about everything. So I figure that anyone who likes him must be the same sort of person, or really unintelligent. And yet I know some people who are intelligent and good-hearted people who seem to like Donald Trump. I don't get it. I don't get it at all. I cannot comprehend why they like him. It makes absolutely no sense. They don't act like that. They would never act like that. So why do they like someone who does? So I have railed on social media, not only against Trump, but also against his supporters. And you probably think I'm about to repent of that, but I'm not. I don't think that's necessarily wrong. I mean, we can debate about tactics and strategy in any given moment, and I know that some people might say that we should never attack or criticize the common supporter of someone like Trump, but I'm not convinced of that. Even nice people need to be called out for supporting people and policies that are dangerous and harm lots of other people. Now, the point I'm trying to make, and perhaps I have not used the best analogy, but I'm trying to make a point about Matthew's caricature of Pharisees and, as we will see in the passage that we're about to look at, Sadducees. 
Matthew's caricature lacks nuance. And given Matthew's situation, I think that's fair. I think he has good reason to paint these groups with broad brushstrokes. And let me be clear, I'm not saying that the Pharisees and Sadducees are analogous to Trump supporters. Rather, I'm saying that Matthew's caricature of them is analogous to my caricature of Trump supporters. A better comparison to today's situation, although still very, very rough, would be with establishment parties. The Pharisees and Sadducees were the two major parties in Jerusalem in the early first century. I'm going to take an even bigger risk here and suggest that the Pharisees were sort of like, in exceedingly rough comparison, they were sort of like the Democratic Party in the United States today, and the Sadducees were like today's Republican Party. Okay, that's a very, very rough analogy, and some scholars will hate that analogy. But I think it's a little helpful, as long as we realize it's extremely limited. And you will see why I compared them that way when we get to a quote from Josephus a little later in this episode. Anyway, Jesus in Matthew critiques these two parties the way a peasant radical might critique major establishment parties. There is little nuance, and that makes sense. Now, Jesus in this story is a peasant, but the author of Matthew, let's call him Matthew, although that's probably not his name, but let's call him Matthew. The author of Matthew was not a peasant. Matthew was a Pharisee. I think he was. I think he was very, very likely a Pharisee. I think he was a Pharisee who, like some other Pharisees, defected from his class to join a radical peasant movement. So he is being really harsh on the group that he has defected from. As I've said before, we often reserve the harshest criticism for groups that we have split from. So all that needs to be taken into account as we look at this passage. So with all that, Let's read the first four verses of Matthew 16. Matthew 16, 1-4. The Pharisees and Sadducees came, and to test Jesus, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. He answered them, When it is evening, you say, It will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. An evil and adulterous generation asks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. Then he left them and went away. So now the Sadducees join the Pharisees in challenging Jesus. We haven't seen the Sadducees since chapter 3. Josephus describes the Sadducees as the party of power and wealth. In his work, Antiquities of the Jews, he writes, The Sadducees are able to persuade none but the rich, and have not the populace obsequious to them. But the Pharisees have the multitude on their side. If Josephus is giving us an accurate picture, even though both groups were part of the establishment of the upper classes, the Pharisees were more popular among the people, whereas the Sadducees were more popular among the elite. See why I made the comparison with the Democrats and Republicans? 
But here in the story in Matthew, Jesus is threatening the power base of the Pharisees with his popularity among the people. So now the Pharisees are getting desperate and building a coalition with the Sadducees, normally a rival establishment party. The Pharisees and Sadducees were often competitors in the halls of power in Jerusalem. That they joined forces at this point to challenge Jesus indicates that the powers that be are circling their wagons. The last time we saw the Sadducees in this story was when they joined the Pharisees to challenge John the Baptizer. And we all know what happened to John the Baptizer. Here they asked Jesus for a sign. The Pharisees did this by themselves back in chapter 12. This time, the narrator tells us that they have come to test Jesus. That word test can also be translated tempt, and it is the same word used for what the devil was trying to do to Jesus back in chapter 4 when the devil tested or tempted Jesus at the end of Jesus' 40-day fast. The narrator is telling us that the Pharisees and Sadducees are unwittingly carrying out the devil's agenda. And just like in that scene where Jesus does not oblige the devil, Jesus will also not oblige the Pharisees and Sadducees. Instead, he says something to them that gets lost in our translations. It doesn't have to get lost. A few translations, such as the Old American Standard Version of the Bible and the Old English Revised Version, don't lose it. But most English translations, including the NRSV, which I usually read in these episodes, obscure the play on words that Jesus makes in this passage. Most English translations have Jesus talking about the Pharisees and Sadducees telling weather by looking at the sky. What gets lost is that the word for sky is the same word in Greek as the word for heaven. So when the Pharisees ask Jesus for a sign from heaven, Jesus replies, When it is evening, you say it will be fair weather, for heaven is red. And in the morning it will be stormy today, for heaven is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of heaven, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. So you see what he does there? Jesus is playing off of the question being asked. He is telling them that they want a sign from heaven because, typical of upper-class men, their sights are often on the lofty matters of heaven, but they can't see what's happening right in front of them on the earth. Remember what I said in the intro to this episode about privileged and powerful people thinking and speaking in terms of lofty ideals that don't actually exist on the ground? Jesus has been performing signs Jesus has been performing signs of healing and feeding the people. But they can't see them as signs because they are not, for them, the proper signs. Now, while we modern readers might assume that any miraculous act would count as a sign, an ancient reader would not make the same assumption. What the Pharisees and Sadducees are asking for is not something supernatural, but something proper that they can respect. They don't respect Jesus' healing and feeding work. In fact, they have been challenging his practices of healing and who he eats with. They want to see a proper sign of his authority. What we think of as the supernatural aspect of the sign is not the salient point for them. 
What is salient is the socio-political nature of the sign. They see Jesus gaining power and authority among the people, and they think they can expose him as a fraud if they ask for a proper sign, which they assume he can't give. This is not about supernatural versus natural, but rather about where Jesus gets his power and authority. But Jesus will not play that game, just as he would not play that game with the devil. Again, he tells them that the only sign that they will get is the sign of Jonah. In other words, his death and resurrection in triumph over the forces of imperial death. That will be the sign. The Jonah story was interpreted by Israelite literature at the time as a story of metaphorical death and resurrection. In chapter 12, Jesus' statement about the Jonah story reflects this understanding that it is a story about death and resurrection. It is also a story about nonviolent prophetic triumph over a brutal empire, the Assyrian Empire. And that is also why Jesus keeps using it as the only sign that he will give his challengers. Because that is the point. All three groups, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, and the Jesus movement, all want liberation from empire, at least in theory. The debate is how to get there. The establishment groups are trying to do it in establishment ways. They often have arcane arguments about the law and tradition. If they can get that right, they believe then that God will deliver them. Of course, this method has not worked, and it's not likely to work or change anything, but that's okay, because these upper-class groups are in no hurry. They have carved out a comfortable place for themselves in the current situation. Some of them even have Roman citizenship. So, a method that is not likely to work or change anything, while at the same time signaling to everyone that they are zealous for their nation's laws and traditions, serves them well kind of reminds me of how slow, privileged people in our society are to take action to change things. On the other hand, Jesus and his disciples are peasants who bear the brunt of the current situation, so Jesus is not interested in investing in fantasy ideas that never get anywhere. While he is under no illusion that things will change quickly or easily, He is addressing the material situation of what his people are experiencing on the ground. Jesus is oriented toward the times. He tells the Pharisees and Sadducees that they can't read the signs of the times. The Greek word for times is kairoi, the plural of kairos, that famous Greek word that you've probably heard of, which often carries the meaning of the critical or opportune moment. Jesus is telling them that these are the times of opportunity. The time to act and make a difference is now. The time of liberation is now. Jesus is taking action now. He is healing and feeding people now. He is leading this movement, organizing Jewish and Gentile peasants now. But Matthew, Matthew is writing this all down approximately 50 years later. 
When Matthew is writing this down, Rome not only remains, but has destroyed Israel. So what does Jesus mean that the time for liberation is now? Which, from Matthew's point of view, is 50 years ago. How does Matthew find hope in this liberation 50 years later after Rome has destroyed his nation and Rome's end seems nowhere in sight? And what sort of hope can we find 2,000 years later here in our current situation in the 21st century? I think we begin to get that answer later in this chapter as Jesus begins to talk about the communities that will put into practice his teaching of the new society. But for now, my name is Bert Newton. The music for this episode has been provided by Bob Nolte and David Martin. Please share this podcast with your friends and enemies and everyone in between. You can support this podcast through PayPal. Just send the donation to subversivewisdom at gmail.com. A big thanks to all who have done that. Thank you so much. You can also email questions and comments and notes of encouragement and secret hopes of liberation that the Holy Spirit has whispered in your ear to be shouted from the rooftops. You can mail all of that, email all of that to subversivewisdom at gmail.com. This has been episode 40 of Bible Study, Parody, and Subversion in Matthew's Gospel.